Our call to worship today is found in Romans 5, 1 through 8, and page 1040 and 1041 on your pew Bibles. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because the love that God has poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right. Uh, This morning's Old Testament reading for uh, the Old Testament um, is going to be found in Proverbs Proverbs 6, uh, verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up dissension in the community. This morning's New Testament reading is found in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. It's on your pew Bible on page 1048. For we do not live to ourselves alone, and we do not die to ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason... Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So just a little straight talk. Last week we talked about some practical ways in which we might flesh out this question that I've been asking week after week. What does it look like to organize our lives after the story of Christ, which is embedded in the story of God and humanity? When we think of the story of self-sacrificing love, which is what it distills down to. The story of Jesus is the story of self-emptying, self-sacrificing love. When we get to those words, those two words, one hyphenated, self-sacrificing, and love, how do we as a people live our lives around those words? There are so many different ways, and I made some suggestions last week at the end of my sermon about what a few of them might look like. I mean, just off the top of my head, I mean, certainly you could come up with many yourselves, but I think of one of the things on a personal level it might look like, excuse me, it might look like the development of character. It might look like service. It might look like the development and care and maintenance of my giftedness and my spiritual gifts. It might look like uh, the call of the nature that, that Brennan is describing. Diane Whitley also did student mission service out of this church. We recently uh, sponsored Sam Brannan, Branham to a short-term mission in Belize. might look like something like that, where there's an extended period of dedicated service. For a select few, it might look like a vocation. 
You remember I confessed my own uh, struggles with the fact that I never get to be a volunteer, and yet my whole life is given in service. It might look like embracing causes that are larger than any one of us and trying to find ways to live that honor these and honor God in the process and take care of people in the process. There's ecological justice that we we ought to be free to pursue, economic justice that we ought to care about. Scripture is full of exhortations about caring for the fatherless and the widows. That's ecological and, excuse me, economic justice. There's issues of social justice that we ought to concern ourselves with. How many texts and passages in the Old Testament and New relate to the way in which we treat one another? Codes about human labor and bondage and all sorts of things that that were part and parcel of the ancient world, but cared. How do we we take on the radical affirmations of, of personhood that Jesus Christ made? These are issues that we might concern ourselves with in the world in which we live today. But my focus this morning is going to be on something that's of vital interest to each of us, and that's the idea of belonging. The first thing that we need to understand about belonging is that we don't belong to ourselves. I know that that's un-American, know that we're moved by the speech that says, I'm the master of my own destiny. I know that we want the kind of independence and mental strength and fortitude and grit to be able to say, I'm about me, for me, by me, and I can take care of me. There's something we admire about that in our culture and something altogether not wrong in parts of that. But the fact is that we belonged to God who made us, we rebelled against the God who made us, and we gave ourselves over to the kind of doubt that jeopardized a relationship and made it no longer possible to be an intimate one. We gave ourselves over to sin and death and to a new master. We became enslaved to that sin and death And our new master was not of our choosing. But thanks be to Jesus Christ, who stands in the midst of all of this and says, I'm not going to give up, and redeems us and takes back his possession, his people, and destroys the power of the one who had dominion over us, and now says, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And the price is the blood of Jesus Christ. So the choice that we have in life today is, will we own that? Will we honor that? Will we live that? Or will we rebel against that? You've been bought with a price. You've been loved with a kind of love that is unfathomable in its depth and scope and scale. The kind of love that would empty itself completely 
for you. It would forsake heaven's powers and pleasures for you. It would come into a world of risk and heartache and pain for you. That's the self-sacrificing love that we're talking about. And Scripture's clear. Bible is clear on this. We do not belong to ourselves, but to the one who redeemed us and called us his own. The one who ransomed us from the devil and claimed dominion once again in this world. We belong to life, not death. We belong to eternity. We belong to the one who loved us, which is the same one who made us. We belong to the creator and the redeemer and the deliverer, the one who will consummate this cycle we find ourselves in, who will one day end evil altogether. So my starting premise today is that first we belong to God, but we also belong to one another. This is really hard to get my head around because I'm not organized in my life much that way. Let's think about this. There's a sense in which we all have a national identity, or many of us anyway. Some are immigrants and have multiple national identities or are struggling as we transfer from one national identity to another. It's a common story in the American way. My ancestors were immigrants too. Finding a new land, speaking a new language, figuring out new ways, adapting. National identity. And in the midst of all the diversity, we can still say, this is the land I love. We're Americans. Even though we're not the same ethnic background or linguistic background or the same uh, country of origin or whatever, out of this diversity, we're a land. We have a national identity. We have identities that are much more localized than that as we move through, too. I've spent most of my time in California in life. Believe me, being a Californian is not the same as being a Texan, not the same as being a Montanan, whatever they call themselves, not the same as being a Virginian or a person from Maine. And not only am I Californian, I'm Southern Californian. And if you're Adventist in Southern California and you meet an Adventist from Indiana, the Adventist from Indiana knows automatically you are going to hell. This is just the fact. Accept it, people. We're from liberal California. The Southern Californian has an identity that's distinct. If you're part of L.A., L.A. is not like San Francisco. It's not like Chicago. It's certainly not like Atlanta or Boston. L.A. has its own vibe, its own feel. They haven't made a show called L.A. Landia, but they don't need to. Hollywood is here and everything centers around Hollywood. Portlandia was just a weird exception. So we have this identity that gets focused down. We used to have identities with clans, with families. 
There was a time in my parents' generation when there was an annual or every other year family reunion. How many of you still do an annual family reunion? Almost nobody. There was a time when identity centered around clan, extended family. You know, one family connected to another in generations and you went back and there were branches that came off and people got together and connected in those ways. It's identity that came through family proper, nuclear family, whatever that meant, whatever that looked like. There's always been a thing called Christian identity, and if you have long been a part of the Adventist tradition, you know that Adventist identity is a subset of that, a kind of uh, specialized subset of that, if you will. Unlike most of our brothers and sisters, we're here Saturday, not Sunday. When we were formed, unlike most of our brothers and sisters, we knew that Jesus Christ would one day come again, and we preached it. Unlike many of our brothers and sisters, we knew that the dead would rest in Jesus until that day when he awoke them to resurrection life. There were certain things that made us distinct and made us different and brought us together into communities. But after all those identity pieces have been explored, what does it mean to belong to one another? What does that look like? Are we to be like Cain who cried out to God when he was confronted about the death of his brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? How am I responsible? You know that Cain was cursed, that God marked him on his forehead. And that's a That understanding ought to inform us as we look at Daniel and Revelation and the prophetic pieces about that, curses and blessings. Cain has committed this terrible crime against life and against his brother Abel. And God protects him even in his his sin, but he marks him. Are we to be like this? Am I my brother's keeper? No responsibility, just my family? What does it look like to belong to one another? Well, the Bible gives us a few clues. The most obvious is the one you're familiar with. I've talked about it many times. Every pastor talks about it many times. We talk about it at nominating committee time. There are several passages of Scripture in which Paul is explicit. The analogy is Christ is the head and the church is the body, and we're all parts of the body. So then the analogy goes, because I'm a toe and not an eye, am I not a part of the body? If, if I'm, you know, the elbow and not the knee, am I happy about that or unhappy about that? Do I get to still be part of the body? Right? We, t- we talk about those pieces. Now, you'll note that in the body there are two of some things and only one of another, right? So some of us have pretty unique roles. The body of Christ is made up of a diversity of parts. That's the scriptural model. And obviously, when you think about your body, you don't say, that's a hand. You say, that's my hand. When you tell somebody to look at you, you don't say, look into eyes. You say, look into my eyes. There is a sense of collective about these many parts that go into an identity we call ourselves that we have and hold very preciously, as we ought to. So many of the admonitions in Scripture that we find about what it means to live corporately have to do with what we ought to not do. 
Why do you think Paul is obsessed in his New Testament Gospels as he talks to churches forming and lives, teaches them to live out of the Acts experience? Remember in Acts, God acts in power, and the church starts growing, and they organize themselves, each bringing what they have and sharing it and holding it in common. That's the early church experience. But that's communism, you say. Well, that would be the political system that espouses that view. It's true. Or you might say that's socialism. I'm not about that. I'm for capitalism. Okay, good. But what do we do with Acts chapter 2? What does that little example of the, the birthing church and the way they shared resources and lived together tell us about how we ought to share resources and live together today? That's the question. And so Paul spends, as churches start forming, not just Jerusalem, but elsewhere in, in Asian Minor, the, the diaconate, the deacons are, are formed out of the fact that there is racial inequality. Are you aware of that? Right? One of the first issues in the church was, was a social justice issue of race. See, the Greeks weren't be, being treated the same way that the Jews were. The Hebrew widows were being looked after, but the Greek widows were being ignored. And so one of the first things that happens in the early church is deacons are established and set up of both groups to look after the widows and the orphans so that social justice prevails and everybody is taken care of in an an equitable way. Amazing, isn't it? From the very beginning, some of the problems we struggle with in the church today are present, and yet they found a way to serve and, and help one another and to stay in community. Paul, when he talks about the early churches, talks about all the sorts of things that he wants them to stay away from. Sexual immorality, you know, adultery, uh, impurity of all kind. He talks about integrity in business, not being a, a liar, but being honest. He draws from Jesus's, let your yes be yes and your no be no, integrity in business, being a community of integrity. I give Santa Clarita Church very high marks here. There aren't that many divorces that I've, I've had to, to process in this place, especially ones based in adultery. Uh, there, I give Santa Clarita high marks in that there isn't always a lot of gossip, there isn't a lot of slander, there isn't a lot of bad business practice. I can say, though, that when those things have entered our church, they've been devastating. People have been hurt, maligned, become depressed, angry. Some have left. Some have moved on. Some are not back yet. Paul talks about the sins that we can engage because he knows they're destructive of community. He knows that they destroy the way in which we relate and interfere with our belonging one to the other. You know what I mean? An Adventist goes into business with another Adventist and one of them is dishonest and takes money from the other and now they're supposed to go to church and pretend that it doesn't matter and worship the God who presides over them as if it doesn't matter? It's not good. It's not good. It it requires integrity. It requires that we treat one another as if we belong to one another that we treat one another as family in the best sense of the word. 
that we care for one another out of our ethic and our behavior in ways that don't destroy church. I didn't hear any amens to the proverb this morning, but it's pretty strong. Wasn't it a little straightforward? Here are some things that the Lord hates. Wow. Boy, that's straight up, isn't it? The guy who's writing that didn't mince words, not for a second. Boy, talk about an economy of words, which I know you're thinking, if only the pastor would employ that. So I'll get to the punch. Proverbs is pretty straightforward. It's pretty straight up. These are some things that the Lord hates. Verse 16. Seven things that are detestable to him. Now, what is seven the number of? Completeness or perfection, right? So do you think there are really only seven things the Lord hates? No. But here's a good sample of them. Haughty eyes. What does that refer to? Arrogance, pride. Sure. Isn't it difficult to be in the presence of someone who's always the greatest or has to be the greatest? Doesn't that interfere with self-sacrificing love and mutual service? A lying tongue. Now, that covers a lot of things, doesn't it? Someone who's a liar, someone who's a gossiper, because inevitably, when you gossip, the story gets distorted. You hear a true story, and several generations out, it's no longer a true story. That's just the way we tell stories. We add, we embellish, we we change words, meaning shifts. Whether we mean to or not, when we gossip, we become liars. And gossip becomes slander. A lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting that in the Christian community, We talk about the way in which a man should not lie with a man for that is an abomination to the Lord. And media is focused on it and books are written on it. And it's part of our public relation nightmare with the world at large right now. We're very dedicated to this because God said something about it. And it has something to do with our sexuality. And it's big in the evangelical community, even bigger than in the mainline community, which has come to make some peace with that issue. But the word is abomination. And yet when it comes to lying lips, a lying tongue, which is also an abomination to the Lord, there's no press release. There's no placard. There's nobody boycotting anything or demonstrating. Interesting, isn't it? Hands that shed innocent blood. That's always a problem. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Nobody likes somebody who is divisive. Nobody likes anybody who contorts the truth. It's hard to live in community with people who are about no good. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. This is a contrast in Scripture. How beautiful are the feet of them who bear the good news. Hear the contrast. A false witness who pours out lies. There it is, repeated twice, even though these are seven. Two of the same. 
and a person who stirs up dissension in the community. Why? Because we belong to one another. So when one of us is out of line and stirring up dissension and creating problems, there's a time to put our arm around that person and say enough. It's a time to counsel, labor, a time to work with, and a time to cut off. Time to say no more. That's what community does. That's how we belong to one another. That's how we protect what God has given us and what we've got. I want to speak to Romans 14 very briefly because it's one of our texts of import for today. The whole thing is on the weak and the strong. The whole thing is on how some people value certain things in religion more than others. Some are more threatened than others by by things. And how we ought to live sensitively with one another, not offending where possible. But Romans 14, 7 says, We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. It's an interesting play on something. What the author is saying is in all circumstances, in life and death, we belong to God. And if we belong to God and are together heirs in Christ, living in Christ, we belong to one another. And we ought to treat one another as if that were the case. There's something powerful about belonging. There's something chosen, something special. You see, when I affirm that I belong to you and you belong to me, when I affirm that we together belong to the God who made us, loved us, redeemed us, cares for us, gifts us, empowers us, calls us to community, and when one day take us to be with him forever, when I affirm those things, When you affirm those things, it gives us a tool like none other for letting our lives be organized around the story of Jesus and his self-sacrificing love. Because when we have learned to obey the commandment, love one another, love one another, It can't be anything but self-sacrificing. And the grace that comes to us in this, the power that comes to us in this, the witness that is born out of this is like no other. And when a church has found this and embraced this and chosen to live this out, and has achieved the kind of health that comes as we honor one another, it will do nothing but grow. It will do nothing but speak to the power of God in a fractured world and in a community that thinks in terms of self. God is calling you. God is calling you to look beyond yourself. He's looking for people who will organize their lives around the story of the Son, Jesus Christ. Looking for people 
who will make that story not just something they read about a long time ago or at one time got teary over and walked down an aisle and said, okay, I'm in. But people who are ready to say, I'm ready to explore this. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to live this. I want it to mean something. The way I relate to others, the way I relate to family, the way I conceive of others in family, and for myself. May God bless you all, individually, in your families, and collectively, as we seek to reflect the face of Jesus to a world that's increasingly hostile to the name. May that truly be our reality, that we are ever only all for Thee. Bind us together by Your grace, Lord, in service, in community, and self-sacrificing love. Amen.